Howdy, howdy, motherfuckers. This is, uh, sorry, episode eight, that's what I meant to say. Episode eight of the Five Figures Podcast. I'm Callum, your intrepid host. And we're just coming off of a pretty decent event. UFC 275, headlined by Yuri Prohaska and Glover Teixeira for the UFC Light Heavyweight Championship. It was pretty good, the event as a whole. On that note, I'd like to just go straight off the bat and address, I don't know, it just irritates me. Like, UFC fans, and that is fans of the promotion itself, of the brand, the UFC, as opposed to specific fighters, as opposed to unionization efforts, as opposed to the people who provide them entertainment. There are a group of people who are just, they are fanatic about the brand itself, and they will go to any lengths on Twitter to defend the brand and to defend the integrity of the brand. And... There were, there were people bringing up next week, not next week, UFC 276. 276 and how that's got a, that's quite a, got quite a bit of name value and, and also comparing current events to events from a couple of years ago. I think the specific, the specific example I saw was from 2018 and it was UFC 225 which is, looking back, a pretty stacked card off the top of my head. Without without actually bringing up the card, I think you had Rob Whitaker versus Yoel Romero 2 in the main event. You had Colby Covington versus Rafael Dos Anjos for the interim welterweight championship. You had CM Punk on that card. I believe Curtis Blades and Overeem was that card as well. It had a lot of star power. Joseph Benavidez versus Sergio Pettis, I think think was on that card, because it was in Chicago, uh, I think, yeah, that, that was that card, it was a pretty stacked card, and they were comparing it to UFC 275, and saying, well, the, the name value isn't there, and I, I certainly agree, and then there were people in the comments, people in the replies to that tweet, saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter, because ultimately, name value isn't the only thing that determines whether, whether something is a good fight, I'm like, yeah, but his point isn't negated by, by that fact, Yes, you can have a random fucking fight night that has a bunch of dope fights. Cool. But let's compare. Okay, so I have a dope fight night with a bunch of randoms who I've never heard of. And I, I'm surprised by its, its you know, how good it is. The quality of the card. I'm surprised by how good it is. Versus a card which has which is also successful but has a bunch of fucking fighters that I know. Which, which card am I more invested in? Which card is going to come across as more significant to me? It's going to be the fucking... It's going to be the card with a bunch of goddamn names on it. It always is. That's why when we go and, and the UFC does their events of the year, they never talk about these fight night events, even when the fight night events are really surprisingly good. They don't really talk about them much, because ultimately, the events that pique our interest and capture our imaginations and keep us emotionally invested for more than just a few minutes when we when we're going oh wow look at how surprisingly entertaining this card is the events that have longevity are the ones who we we remember the people who were headlining we remember the people who were on the prelims we remember those motherfuckers you know i might look down a random fight night card from 2017 and go wow there's a bunch of surprisingly good fights there but is it am i going to view it retrospectively as significant as significant as an event like UFC 217 for example that was in 2017 I believe yeah no because that card had fucking GSP Michael Bisping it had DJ Dillichor versus Cody Garbrandt one it had Yoni and Jacek getting knocked out by Rosnami Yunus like shit man god I just dislike this whole rant this rant to begin the podcast is simply just to say shut the fuck up people who are trying to invalidate this notion that the UFC isn't trying as hard when it comes to name value nowadays. Because they're not. They fucking... They, they are not. Look down this card and tell me that, that casuals know fucking Brendan Allen better than, like, fuck, man. I don't know. I could whip out a pay-per-view from 2017. Or, or fuck, I could look at UFC 208. Genuinely, one of the worst cards ever. There's a bunch of better name value on that shit than there is nowadays, actually, Bilal Muhammad was headlining the prelim card, so, <laughs> I don't know, Islam Makashev was on the prelims for that one as well, shit, that was his unanimous decision over Nick Lentz, god, that card sucked, 
<laughs> not specifically because of that fight itself, but like shit, there was some there was some motherfucking boring things on that card. Anyway, that's beside the point entirely. The point is, this card didn't have a lot of name value. Regardless, it was still entertaining. So that's cool. There's some things to talk about. What was interesting? I mean, we'll start with Silvana Gomez Suarez beat uh, Liang Na. Beat her by fucking knockout. And Jesus, Na came out and uh, striking defense. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Reaching for takedowns. Like, the comparison I saw on Reddit was Derek Brunson in, in his prime head outside and far ahead of his his hips like that stage of Derek Brunson and I don't think he's really gotten past that stage he looked like that against Jared Cannonier recently a few times so you know but yeah Liang did not look great in this fight but Silvana Gomez Juarez she looks fucking solid had a monster was it a 1-2 or a 3-2 I can't remember but she fucking cracked nah with a shot, and put her out, it was a beautiful, beautiful knockout, and I, I only just realized it was her first UFC victory, I remember seeing her fight Lupita Godinez, 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 fuck me, I suck at pronouncing names, yeah, I thought she looked pretty decent in the early going of that fight, and then she got taken down, and then she got submitted, so, you know, this is her first win in the UFC, how good, and she looked really good doing it, against an opponent who appeared to have no sense of technique, I guess, not, it's, it renders it less significant than it would be otherwise, but, you know, whatever, Kyung Ho Kung defeated Dana Bakarel, his jab looked fucking sensational, man, but that's, I mean, I talked about him on the previous podcast briefly, and just said, you know, he had that banger with Ricardo Ramos, Ricardo Ramos, and, and, that's why it was such a great fight, is Kong has just a, a really sensational jab, technically, fundamentally sound, good timing on it, and he just pumps it out religiously, and has some nice kicks as well, and Ramos and him just went kind of back and forth, and, and were developing game plans on the fly for one another, it was a really interesting chess match, and so it was, it was good to see him get another victory here, do his thing, I think ultimately one of my issues with him has been he's not really as active as I think he probably should be. He's he's always pumping his jab out there, but the rest of his offensive arsenal there's not as it's not as frequently seen as his jab and it does mean that sometimes he uh, he gets caught up. He his opponents they start putting together combinations and all of a sudden it's a lot closer than it probably should be given Kong's distance management is pretty decent. Brennan Allen defeated Jacob Malkoon. I actually only caught the third round of this, <laughs> which is the round that Brennan Allen seemed to definitively win. But this was a pretty... I saw some people saying Jacob Malkoon should have won, but apparently he was just laying praying. When I tuned in, Brennan Allen, Brennan Allen shortly... Shortly after I tuned in, Brennan Allen was on top. He he got on top and he was landing some elbows. He was doing some good shit from the top. Apparently he was also not being particularly effective either from his back or from the top, so, you know, I don't know, apparently it was a kind of nothing matchup, but Brendan Allen did win, and I predicted he would win, so, bada bing, bada boom, that said, I think he was a pretty sizable favorite, a sizable favorite, I can't remember actually what the odds were for that fight, so, I don't know, Mayashate defeated Steve Garcia by a KO, yeah, that was cool, I did actually catch that, yeah, I think I, I saw pretty much everything from Kong uh, Bakarel onwards. Yeah, that was cool. Kilabao versus Choi was dope. It was a split decision. I'm trying to think. Did I think it was a split decision? No, I thought Kilabao won that fight. I thought Kilabao, yeah, pretty... Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty confident that he won that fight. I thought he looked really good with his shifting combinations, man. His shifting combinations were fucking good. And then... Uh, there was an interesting point, actually, in the middle of this fight, where he had Choi hurt, and then he started grappling with Choi. And of course, the first thing commentators do when someone hurts their opponent and then they start grappling with them, the first thing they do is always, oh, they shouldn't do that, they need to separate. They need to frame on the face, they need to separate, get back into the open, and they need to take advantage of their rocked opponent. 
And I don't know, man. It just fucking irritates me. It just irritates me that that's kind of the go-to. That is the automatic response to a scenario like that. Like, come on, guys. Sometimes that is not the answer. It's like, well, we'll talk about this later, but Glover Teixeira rocking Yuri Prohaska, and then he starts trying to grapple with Yuri, and then these motherfuckers on the comment, in the commentary booth are saying, oh, no, he needs to separate. He needs to go back to the hands because he'd hurt Yuri there. I'm like, bitch, no, you are, Glover, you are a grappler. Do not, do not stand with this motherfucker. Jesus Christ. It's a terrible idea. Don't do that. But yes, anyway, the point is, Josh Kilbauer had hurt Choi, and then he initiated a grappling exchange, and then they go off talking about how he needs to separate, and then he does separate, and then Choi decides, you know, fuck it, I'm just going to bring the heat, and starts throwing like a fucking 10-punch combination. He's just shifting forward with shots and, and throwing with 100% power the whole time, and seems to... I believe he does actually hurt Kilbao at the end of the first round with that. And I'm just sitting there going, bruh, you know what? Michael Bisping and Daniel Cormier, maybe you needed to shut the fuck up. Because, you know, in that instance, grappling kind of was the answer. I don't know. It's just... I just don't think it should be the automatic response from commentators. Because in some scenarios, yes, grappling a motherfucker, taking him down and exploiting his inability to defend a takedown can be a good move. Particularly, it was, it was like the end of the round. It was the end of the round. So just like get that takedown, a round which I thought Kilbao was winning, but, you know, Choi was putting together combinations and doing some effective work. In the I think the first minute and a half, two minutes, it felt like Kilbao couldn't find his range. He couldn't he couldn't touch Choi. He was, he was whiffing on a lot of shit. So he is. I think the moral of the story is that I was kind of impressed by Josh Kilbao. And I just didn't expect to be as impressed by Josh Kilbao as I was. And so that was cool. How delightful. You got a split decision, though, and I don't think it should have been split. That's a weird statement, isn't it? Split decision is a disagreement between judges. Like, of course you disagree with the notion of a split decision. You you presume someone should have won definitively to some extent. Anyway, that's beside the point. Anyway, on the main card, we had some dope fights. Jack Della Maddalena defeated uh, Amiev. He had some issues initially. Nearly got caught in an anaconda. And was able to turn over and escape. It was really good. I thought his takedown defense was pretty damn solid. Thought he was... Well, the issue is always going, you know, turtling up. You're giving up the front headlock. And from the front headlock, opponents can, can go for the guillotine on you. They can go for the dars or the anaconda choke. They can, they can take the back if they're particularly quick and they're able to block the hand, or block the underhook, that is. So, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very solid strategy, though. Me, personally, a very, very non-professional athlete, very, very non-professional Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor, yeah, I, I personally try to go for the single or turtle, go to single or turtle and then try and get back to my feet that way. So, yeah... But, uh, like I said, you give up the Anaconda in some circumstances. And Amiev locked onto that. Very nearly got it. Couldn't, though. Jack Della Maddalena was able to get back to his feet. And he... I, I don't know. Some of his body striking here was a little bit concerning because it did leave his head kind of just sitting out there. His chin was just wide open at various points throughout the course of this relatively short fight. It only went for half a round, two and a half minutes. But... Yeah, there were a few circumstances where he was throwing that left hook to the body and I was kind of going, maybe, dude, don't throw it with your chin up there as high as it is. He did throw a really nice right hook to the body from Southpaw, though. That was really cute. I liked it a lot. I liked that a lot. And I don't... I oh. No, I think his chin still was kind of hanging up in the air a little bit precariously. Regardless, he got the finish with a left hook to the body, so who gives a shit? It was a good flurry. You know, it was a flurry... That led Amiev to the fence, and from there he was able, he was kind of flying up top, and then went to the body, and Amiev just kind of crumbled, and that was that. It was pretty cool. Solid job from Jack Della Maddalena. And then immediately after, another Australian who we just did not anticipate was going to perform to the level that he did, Jake Matthews. Jake Matthews defeated Andre Fialio by KO in the second round, and this was just wild. Fialio could not get going. He was pressuring pretty much the entire time. The entire first round, he's on the front foot. He's trying to get in Jake Matthews' face. But Jake, man, doing a really good job. His jab looked better than it ever had. He was hooking around the guard quite effectively. 
utilizing lateral movement. You know, he, he wasn't really ever pinned up against the fence. Even when he was pushed close to the fence, he was still he was still had he had space to move appropriately, and he was circling off the fence effectively, not giving Fialio that left hook, not giving Fialio the jab. He was countering every single time Fialio was throwing. Yeah. It was really interesting, I thought. You know, Fialio doesn't work well when guys come back in on him. Think back to the Michelle Pierre fight, which I talk about it like it was a fucking, like it was two years ago. That was four fights ago now for Fialio, and that was only in January. Crazy, this dude's activity has been immense. Hopefully he does take a break, though, because this was a pretty bad finish. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he struggled in that fight once once Piera started throwing more shots. In the second and third rounds, Piera really opened up with the volume and got in Fialio's face and didn't allow Fialio to work that left hook, didn't allow him to work his jab. And then Piera had a lot more success. And I just thought Jake Matthews was countering every time Fialio was trying to get off. Every single time he was he was trying to throw this double jab. Every time he was throwing a kick, Jake Matthews was coming up the middle. Just thought it was a really, really sensational performance. And the final finish was a little bit messy, but regardless, I was still really impressed. Had a really nice pull counter right hook in that finishing combination as well. Yeah, there was just some nice stuff from Jake Matthews. And then we get to the really good shit. Zhang Wei Li defeated Yoni and Jacek. So this is where my predictions kind of went off the fucking fucking deep end. Who did I predict? I predicted Brendan Allen. I don't know if I made a prediction on Killabao. I predicted Jack Della Maddalena. I predicted Andre Fialio. And then I was like, Yoni and Jake, with the addition of it being just a three-round fight versus you know a five-round fight, she might have the advantage because her volume, she can just pump it out, pump it out, pump it out for three consecutive rounds and... She doesn't have to worry about getting fucking pipped by Zhang for two additional rounds. She just has to put volume out there for three rounds and hopefully she'll walk away with a decision. And uh, no, no, it had been two years and I thought her timing had, well, it wasn't as good as it used to be. To be honest, I thought she looked a little bit slower, quite notably slower. But Zhang Weili, man, holy fuck, striking looked great. Some really nice push kicks. Some really nice push kicks, honestly. And, yeah, I just thought, wow. She looks so strong in the clinch as well. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, she looked fucking strong in the clinch. Takedowns were great. And then I thought she was doing a great job of not allowing Joanna to get back up with the underhook. Because Joanna was trying to feed herself back into half guard, particularly when she was mounted. She was mounted, and then she's trying to feed back into half guard, get an underhook, and come up on the underhook. And Zhang, man, just made it so difficult for her. She made it so difficult for her to get half guard back in the first pl- in the first place. And then once she did get half guard, she's still raining down ground and pound the whole time. She's throwing elbows. She's throwing throwing punches, and. She's using a hard wizard. She's not giving Joanna the space that she wants. I just thought she looked so fucking good. And the response from people online seems to be similar kind of sentiment. Wow, this chick is going to murder Carla Esparza. I know we were all saying that about Rose Namajunas, but I guess Rose Namajunas... I, hmm. I think Rose... Uh... She has a tendency to sometimes kind of drift off and and miss, I think, miss the smaller things. Her competitive desire wanes. It ebbs and it flows, I guess. And I think part of that's what led to the mess with Esparza last month. Zhang Weili, I don't think we're going to see that. I think Zhang has a technical advantage and I think she's going to enact She's going to be able to enact a game plan that is just mental. I think she's going to be able to sprawl on any and all shots that Carla puts out there. And on the feet, she is a nightmare for Carla. I I don't know what they are like comparatively in terms of reach and in terms of height. But I feel like the weapons that Zhang has, she has much longer kicks. 
She has that beautiful side kick that she throws. Back when she first came into the UFC, she would miss with the outside low kick, and then she would come back with a, with a side kick off of that same leg. And those kind of weapons give her a lot of range. And she's she's been doing a lot better recently. In my opinion, the Rose Nama Yunus rematch, I thought her striking looked sensational in terms of patience, but also her entries were a lot more fundamentally sound, utilizing the jab a lot better. Her simultaneous counters... I thought were a lot cleaner, particularly with the right hand, with her rear hand. You know, when she first entered the UFC, I thought with her right hand, she was a little bit, like there was a lot of shifting combinations as she's running forward. And then you saw the same kind of thing when she knocked out Jessica Andrade. That finishing combination, she hurts Jessica Andrade with, I believe it's the knee in the clinch. Knee from double collar sides. And then she just rushes forward with a big combination as able to put her out. I thought she was a lot more patient versus Joanna last night. It felt like Joanna was, couldn't get off a single successful combination without getting absolutely clapped, you know? So, yeah, it's really fucking sad, though. Because, you know, Joanna then proceeded to immediately retire. How depressing. Yeah, so... After all these years... When did she come into the UFC? 2013, 2012, something like that. She's had so many incredible fights. So many bangers. She came into the UFC back in 2014, actually, as it turns out. Fought Juliana Lima back in the day. Then she had that banger of a fight. That first fight with Claudia Gadalia was a split decision. It's pretty down to the wire. She got the belt off Carla Esparza at UFC 185, and then from there it was just like, you know, it was beat down after beat down after beat down. And there's just so many fights that we can point to and go, that was a, oh, what a performance. The Valerie Letourneau fight at, in, at, Eddie had stadium. It was Eddie had stadium back then, back in 2015. Damn, that was a performance. It was a five-round beatdown. And then that fight against Claudia Gadalia has one of my favorite moments ever. That was back in July of 2016. The rematch with Claudia Gadalia. She, you know, Joanna gets taken down for two straight rounds, basically. Gadalia hurts her at the beginning of the first. I failed to mention that. Yeah, she hurts her at the beginning of the first, knocks her down, and then is just spamming takedowns for two two rounds. And then it goes into the third round, and Claudia is starting to gasp because she has been putting everything she has into these takedowns. And, you know, Joanna's doing a pretty decent job of defending them. She's being taken down. She's been taken down quite a few times, but she's been doing a good job using the wizard and the cage to get back to her feet, you know, angling off and feeding the single leg when necessary to make it more difficult for Claudia to finish the takedowns, you know, doing really good work to make Claudia work. And in doing so, Claudia gets gassed as a, as a motherfucker. It's about halfway through the third round and Claudia shoots on a takedown, completely misses it. Joanna frames on her face, walks off and does the classic get the fuck up. It's, it's my favorite get the fuck up that I've seen in probably in mixed martial arts history. Yuri Prohaska actually had a really good one last night. I believe it was in the third round. Defended Glover's, defended one of Glover's takedowns. I think sprawled on it. And then Glover tried to pull guard, and Yuri was like, "Get the fuck back up!" And it was it was basically that when Joanna did it to Claudia, she did it twice in that third round. I believe twice in the third round. It might have been once in the fourth, but it was dope. She's just such a gangster. You have very much that get the fuck up, you know? Like she's completely done. And then she just kept pumping Claudia's face with hands. It was dope sensational performance, incredible performance, and then she had that beat down to Karolina Kovacavich, UFC 205, she got hurt briefly in the fourth round, but besides that, it was a complete one-sided beat down, and then she has that, in my opinion, probably the best performance of her career, versus Jessica Andrade at UFC 211, just an incredible performance, I mean, we all know that Jessica Andrade is legit as fuck, ultimately she went on to win the UFC strawweight championship, versus Rose, wasn't able to defend it successfully, but, you know, she won the belt. Very, very legit female competitor, and Joanna gave her nothing for five rounds. Joanna just beautiful lateral movement, gorgeous combination work, stitching in the low kicks and the high... Oh, she landed a couple of meaty high kicks throughout the course of this fight. I also think this fight had the jumping counter hook. There's there's a highlight where Jessica Andrade is flurrying in, and Joanna jumps, because I think she's anticipating a low kick, and she hooks simultaneously, and catches Jessica as she's stepping in, so she's she throws a jumping simultaneous counter hook, and it's fucking dope, so yes, 
she had a sensational career, and then obviously she ended up losing the uh, the women's strawweight championship in November of 2017 versus Rose Namajunas, and from there it's kind of been a tumultuous up and down experience. She had a two year layoff since the last loss to Zhang Wei Li, and now she got fucking knocked out with a spinning back fist last night, and bada bing bada boom, she's sailing off into the sunset. Reasonable enough. Don't fuck around for that much longer. She feels like she's slowed down. She feels like she's not she's not up for the grind as much nowadays as she once was. If that's the case, then please sail off and do your thing and don't get more concussions because that's shit. No one likes that. Then there was the co-main event. I don't even really want to talk about that much because everyone's talking about, oh, look, it was so exciting. Tyler Santos nearly won the belt. Like, it was a shit fight. <laughs> it was a fucking terrible fight. It was a Valentina Shevchenko fight. Valentina, Valentina Shevchenko is not an entertaining fighter. Never has been. She never will be. She murked Jessica Rye, but Jessica Rye shouldn't have been in a championship fight in the first place. So, you know, make of that what you will. Yeah. That was a pretty dull fight. Tyler Santos looked a lot stronger than I think we all anticipated. Yeah. That was basically the big takeaway. The takedowns weren't particularly... You know, they weren't super crazy, I think it was mainly just stuff from the body lock, um, trips from the body lock, I think, was the general, con- was the general mode of takedown for Tyler Santos, and then she just laid and prayed on top of Shevchenko, now that I'm thinking back on it, what did I have it scored as, I think I gave it to Santos, now that I'm, I'm looking back on it, I did, I did actually write a tweet about this, mid-broadcast, no one read it, no one gives a shit about this podcast or my Twitter, but, you know, I put it out there regardless. Yeah, no, I think, what I got, I wrote going into the fifth round, I've got it 3-1 Santos, the most contentious round is presumably the second, but I don't know if Valentina did enough damage in that round to supersede the clear-cut dominant position that Santos was able to secure. That was kind of my point. Valentina, there were a bunch of motherfuckers on Twitter going, oh, you know, she's... You know, Shevchenko's winning rounds because she's landing the more damaging shots and Tyler Santos is just lay and praying. I'm like, bitch, Valentina Shevchenko is the stand-up equivalent of lay and pray. She does nothing. She misses spinning back fists. That is it. What the fuck are you talking about? Anyway, yes. So, I thought Santos could have taken the win. But I also didn't give a shit because I thought the fight was relatively boring. The only reason that people found it entertaining was because they thought Shevchenko might end up losing a fight. They saw halfway through that people were finding it more contentious than than usual. Were finding a lot more reason to give Santos rounds than they usually give Shevchenko opponents. And they went, oh wow, this must be entertaining. It's not. It wasn't entertaining. Shut the fuck up. And then the main event was dope as shit. Yuri Prohaska defeated Glover Teixeira for the UFC Light Heavyweight Championship. How delightful. And it was a banger. It was a real banger. It was a very typical Glover Teixeira fight in the sense that he got brained. Uh, for significant periods of this fight, and it didn't matter because he was able to get takedowns, and from those takedowns, he was able to initiate pretty successful offense. But Yuri Prohaska also did some cool shit as well. Yeah, he started finding his sprawl and, and defending takedowns a little more diligently in the third round. Prior to that point, he was getting taken down pretty easily by Glover. Glover has his stock standard, shoot the single leg, run the pipe, and then lift the lead leg. And then he trips out the standing leg. It's dope. It's a really efficient usage of the single leg, as opposed to running the pipe, not getting the takedown, and then going, well, fuck it, I'll do it again. And just doing that for five minutes straight. No. So it's a more effective usage of his facilities, I guess you could say. Anyway, yes, on the ground, Yuri was struggling initially. Got taken down for significant periods. I mean, that's not particularly surprising given Glover Teixeira is one of the best half-guard players, one of the best side-control players, and has one of the best mounts in mixed martial arts, particularly in the higher weight classes. From light heavyweight upwards, so light heavyweight and heavyweight, I don't think there's anyone I'd say... I I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who has a better half-guard, and certainly not a better mount. Not a better consistent... Not a consistently better mount, is what I meant to say. And we saw a lot of that. There were a couple of points in the first and second rounds, I think, 
where Glover was on top, was in mount, was raining down heaven and hell, and it looked like the fight might actually be stopped. But alas, Yuri was pretty consistent in his intelligent defense, was keeping his guard high, and wasn't uh, wasn't slacking off that much, and was able to push it into the later rounds, where he started having some success. How good. And I thought, well, he wasn't using his snap kicks as often as I anticipated he would. I mean, he's a long motherfucker. Dude is... Dude looks humongous. He's he's insane. I how how tall is he? He's like six foot three on Wikipedia. Apparently, he looks so much bigger than that. I think part of it is obviously Glover is not the biggest dude in the world. Actually, it says here on Wikipedia that Glover Tashira is six foot two. Uh, I'm pressing X to doubt because shit, they looked very very different in terms of height. Yes, Glover. He he started getting caught out with the darting straight left actually from Yuri. It, what it reminded me of the the reference I'm I attributed it to was Alistair Overeem versus Stipe Miocic back in UFC two hundred three a couple of years ago back in twenty sixteen I think. Yeah, there, there's a point where Stipe is kind of just jogging after Overeem because he's re-establishing the distance and Overeem plants all of a sudden doesn't telegraph it at all and just fires off a straight left and drops Stipe on his ass. And that's what led to the guillotine attempt and, you know, Stipe nearly getting submitted and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's what Yuri kind of did. He he just ran off on Glover and Glover just trudges on behind him like, bada bing, bada boom, let's go. And then Yuri plants his feet and all of a sudden is just darting into a straight left and snapped Glover's head back. Glover has the chin of a fucking god, though, so it didn't seem to faze him that much. Additionally, rear-hand uppercuts were pretty successful. We did mention that on the preview episode, that rear-hand uppercuts were really successful with a lot of Glover's other opponents. Obviously, Rumble sent... You know, Rumble sent Glover's head into orbit back in 2016 with the rear-hand uppercut. Alexander Gustafson tooled Glover for five consecutive rounds with the rear-hand uppercut, so... You know, probably a decent move throwing that bad boy out there. And he did. He threw it out there quite a bit and found some success with it. There were a lot of there were a lot of moments in this fight where it looked like Yuri was gonna be able to get the stoppage on the feet and then Clover would just shoot a fucking single leg and it's like, damn, how the fuck do you put this man away? Doesn't make any sense to me. Doesn't make any sense. Just an old Brazilian man just winging right hands and taking uppercuts. He's a he's a fucking anomaly. That's what he is. Anyway, he was going into the fifth round. Looked like Glover was actually going to win this fight because the first two rounds he'd had the... Well, I mean, he'd had a lot of time on top and he'd been doing really significant work from top. He'd been threatening submissions and he had been consistently passing. Oh, man, some of those some of those knee passes into side control. Ugh. They were sexy. They were straight up sexy, man. Didn't realize a 42-year-old Brazilian man could turn me on as much as Glover Teixeira could doing those knee pass passes. Those knee cut passes is what I meant to say. Yeah. It was really impressive. Anyway, it goes into the fifth round. Glover's ahead on the scorecards. Probably 3-1. to one. And then it looked like he was winning that, that fifth round as well. I saw some people who found it a little bit contentious that that was the general, that that was the general take from the audience. I saw some people on Reddit going, oh, I felt it was actually 2-2 two and two going into the final round, and I can kind of see it. There were a couple of rounds where Yuri... The fourth round? I, I actually need to rewatch the fourth round. I, I can't remember as much from that round as I'd like to be able to remember. But there, there were a couple of rounds where I thought Yuri, you know, had made it close enough that there could have been a little bit of contention. It could have been a little bit more divisive. So, you know, whatever. But yeah, it got to the final 30 seconds. Technically, the final 28 seconds. And Yuri just decided, fuck it, I'm going to chuck on a rear naked choke on this motherfucker. I don't even need hooks. Hooks are for pussies. And he was able to win the light heavyweight championship in a fucking weird submission. How delightful. I mean, it's not a weird submission. It's a pretty stock standard basic submission. It's just, really? You're going to win a championship without hooks in on a rear naked choke? I mean, it was a grueling war of attrition, so... I don't, I don't particularly, I don't, I don't judge Glover Tashira that harshly for giving up that submission that deep into the fight. He was 28 seconds away from winning a unanimous decision, defending his belt for the first time successfully. So I can forgive him for giving that one up. But yeah, 
was really impressive from Yuri Prohaska. It was pretty funny, though, early on, where clearly his approach to avoiding some of the takedowns was, yeet, I'm going to roll. I'm doing forward rolls. And Glover just, you know, the reason that those rolls work is when guys shoot in on you and they follow you as you roll. But Glover is shooting in, Yuri's turning away, and then he goes for the roll, and Glover kind of lets go because he knows the roll's coming, and Yuri just kind of falls flat on his back. And then Glover goes, well, shit, I guess I'll take fucking half guard then. And that's how some of these these ground exchanges ended up occurring. It was really funny. It was really funny. It was like all Yuri Prohaska fights. It was terrifying. It was momentous. But it was ultimately exceedingly funny. Because the man, he throws some weird shit. But damn, I would not want to be at the end of a lot of that weird shit. Because he was packing a punch there. In terms of the bonuses, who gives a shit realistically? But the fight of the night was obviously Prohaska versus Teshira. There was a bunch of performance of the night bonuses. Look at that. Isn't the USC so generous? They give $50,000 bonuses to some of their fighters at the end of a card. How delightful. Oh, yeah. they they Oh, that was what came out this week, actually. The revenue split. It was a revenue split figure that was announced. I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm just currently searching it up. But someone just published details. I believe the, the figure I saw was about 17%. There is an article here on Forbes from the 19th of April, 2022. From Paul Gift, that's saying UFC fighter wage share held steady at nineteen to twenty percent for eleven straight years. Okay, so no, I think the figure I saw the other day was seventeen percent, which is like you fucking serious? You imagine? You imagine you're a fucking athlete in the UFC, and all athletes, the revenue share that they're procuring from the UFC is fucking seventeen percent. Bullshit. Fucking bullshit. Anyway, that's completely beside the point. What are some of the takeaways from this event? I mean, first and foremost, who who are you going to match Yuri up with now? Uncle Ive? Maybe? Who did he have a shit fight with recently? Was That that was against Tiago, wasn't it? I mean, I guess you could put Jan Blahovic in there. I guess. I mean, you know, he defended his belt successfully against Izzy probably deserves a rematch after getting the win in his most recent fight. So, I guess... I don't know what Dominic Reyes is doing. What is Dominic Reyes doing again? I've completely forgotten what his go is right now. Yeah, I've got no idea what's going on with him. I'm just looking up the UFC light heavyweight rankings and seeing who else I need to take into consideration because I feel like I've completely blocked a couple of names out of my head. Who can potentially fight for the belt next? Apparently, no, that doesn't look like it. Athlete rankings, that's what I want. Light heavyweight. Bada bing, bada boom. What's it called? Rakic, no, he's injured. Uncle Iev, probably. Anthony Smith. Who is he fighting? Is he fighting someone soon? Because, honestly, it's getting to the point where he might actually be worth another look for a championship, because he's on a 3-5 win streak now. Actually, his most recent fight was in September of 2021. It's been a quick minute, actually. Eh, I can forget I said that. He's only beaten Devin Clark, fucking Jimmy Crute, and Ryan Spann. They're not that significant. Forget I said anything at all. Yeah, you probably want to match, you want to match Yuri up with Jan Blahovic next. Maybe give Glover Uncle Iev. That works for me. Everyone else, Jesus Christ, this is a weird division. Paul Craig's doing something soon. I don't know what it is exactly. Isn't he fighting Vulcan Uzdemir or some shit? Vulcan's fighting somebody. I don't know, this is a weird fucking division. I thought it was a lot more stacked than it actually is. Looking down these rankings now, I'm realizing I was wrong. Yeah, there's that. There's that. I don't know what Shevchenko does next. A lot of people are calling for a rematch with Santos. Sure, I won't watch it, but... You can go the fuck ahead if you want. Jake Matthews should get some fucking higher-ranked competition, actually, because that was a really impressive performance. Jack Della Maddalena's performance over Ramazan Amiev was really impressive, and, I mean, don't push him too fast into ranked competition. He, I think he should fight someone unranked in his next one, and then, if he, if he 
I, I kind of just want to see him have a difficult fight before he hits ranked competition, because I don't want him to to be just knocking motherfuckers out in the first round and then get absolutely starched by someone in the upper echelon of the division. That said, his striking looked great. His body shot selection was sensational. Yeah, no, I think I've exhausted all the conversation points I can procure out of this event. Next week is a fight night card between, or it's headlined by Calvin Cater and Josh Emmett, which, Jesus Christ, now that I'm actually thinking about it, now that I'm actually, now that I'm actually processing that fight, that's a fucking banger. Shit. That'd be sensational. Josh Emmett has a mean overhand right. Throws it great on the counter, throws it great as a lead. Oh, I mean, go watch his fight with Michael Johnson. Jesus Christ. That overhand right he landed on Johnson was mental. Yeah, so he has a sensational overhand right, and Calvin Cater is the king of the jab. Great elbows, great step-in elbows, as we saw against Giga Chikadze as well. Has some really nice spinning shit. It's really nice. Low kicks. Yeah, really long, straight hitter versus a guy who just love over, loves overhand rights and has a mean left hook. And also some really brutal low kicks himself. And comes from Team Alpha Male, so you know he can wrestle. I just, oh, ooh, I think that's a really exciting fight. Donald's Roney is taking on Joe Lozon in the co-main event. That was rescheduled. That was meant to be like a month and a half ago or some shit. And then I think Cerrone fell ill on the day of the fight. So they've rescheduled it for this card because this card will actually have a live audience. And Cerrone and Lozon wanted to fight in front of a live audience. That one should be fun. Eh. Kevin Holland versus Tim Means. Dope. Joaquin Buckley versus Albert Durayev. Dope. Ismagulov is taking on Kudaladze. I like that a lot. Julian Marquez facing Gregory Rodriguez. Gregory Rodriguez has such a big head. He has such a big head. Now that I'm thinking about it, I can't actually remember much from Gregory Rodriguez's fighting style, but Julian Marquez likes wrestling guys. That should be fun. Whatever. And then on the prelims, the, the prelim card is headlined by Adrian Yanez. Thank the Lord. Oh, and he's fighting Tony Kelly. Tony Kelly if you recall correctly, is the motherfucker who was cornering... Who was he cornering recently? He was cornering that chick. Um, cornering that chick in the flyweight division. What the fuck's her name? I can't believe I forgot Andrea Lee's name, name for a minute there. Particularly after... I've, I feel like I've been trying to boost the profile of Andrea Lee with my Reddit comments for the past, like, five fucking years. And then she keeps letting me down. As she did in her most recent fight. Yeah. Anyway, in that, that fight between Vivian Ariujo and Andrea Lee, Tony Kelly was in the corner and he was talking mad. She was kind of making xenophobic comments. There were some people who were trying to defend her. I think I myself wasn't particularly critical because I think um, he... Actually, no, it really was xenophobic now that I'm thinking back on it. It was it was some shit about Brazilians because Ariujo is Brazilian. And it uh, it wasn't... It wasn't in great taste. But Tony Kelly is also the motherfucker who refused to go on a plane and basically... You know, he drove halfway across the country to Vegas, I think it was, to fight because he, I think it was when he fought Randy Costa. He would not go on the plane because they demanded that he show vaccination status. Or No, I think it was that he wear a mask. And he was like, nah, I'm not doing that. Fuck the government. Doing all that good shit. Anyway, Adrian Yanez is fighting him. So we pray to the Lord that Adrian Yanez knocks the fuck out of Tony Kelly. Not just because Tony Kelly sounds like a bit of a dumb cunt, but also because we love Adrian Yanez here, because Adrian Yanez is dope, and has beautiful counters, has a mental left hook, has a gorgeous jab, you know, does all the good things, he's one of the fastest guys in the UFC right now, Oh, that should be, oh, I don't know, I said the Randy Costa fight would be a, a bit of a layup for Costa versus Kelly, and then what do you think happened there? Costa gassed and got elbowed a bunch. But I just think Adrian Yanez is a little bit better than Randy Costa, and I don't think Tony Kelly is as good as Adrian Yanez. So that should be a fun one. What else is on this card? Anything else? Court McGee's there. Cool. Ricardo Ramos is fighting Danny Chavez. I like that a lot. That tickles the pickle. Eddie Wineland is fighting Cody Stamen. Why is Eddie Wineland still fighting? That one confuses me. Phil Hawes is taking on Deron Wynn. The Fridge. Actually, no. Kelvin Gastelum is known as The Fridge. Deron Wynn is... Hmm. The Freezer? I don't know. It doesn't It doesn't have as much punch to it. Yeah. 
that could be boring as batshit, but I mean, Deron Wynn did have that banger of a fight a couple of years ago against, what's his name, the dude who left the UFC for a little while and then came on back, I'm bringing up his schedule right now so I can try and figure it out, Eric Spicely, that's the one, yeah, and then Roman Delizé is fighting Kyle Decors at the bottom of the card. That's a really banging card. In fact, high key, that's about as it's pretty much on par with the card that we just watched. You know, I like that card a lot. The UFC might have been half-assing their shit for a very long time at this point, but that card, not even that half-assed. There's also a KSW card. There's a PFL. Ooh, I only just realised there's a PFL card. PFL four. There's, I know Clay Collard is headlining against Alex Martinez. That's cool. Can't wait to see Clay Collard back. His last performance, that was the one against Jeremy Stevens, wasn't it? That, I mean, that's still, uh, I'd probably put at this point Prohaska and Teixeira in fight of the year candidacy. I'd, I'd say that's my number one candidate, but I think, yeah, I think Clay Collard versus Jeremy Stevens is probably number two or number three. A real banger of a fight. This one should be good. Antonio Carlos Jr. is fighting Bruce Soto in the co-main. Hash Manfio is going to be fighting Oliver or Mercier. Manfio is just coming off of that win versus what's his name? Uh, Don Madge. Yes, that fight where Madge was clearly winning the fight for two rounds, and then Manfio was like, "You know what? I'm just going to knock you the fuck out," and then he did. And I really don't have... I'm hoping that doesn't happen to Auburn Mercier because I like Auburn Mercier. Just wish he could get his shit together a little more consistently. Jeremy Stevens has taken on Miles Price and Mariak Medov's taken on Theodorus Akostolis. Oh, that name I fucked up. I fucked that one up real bad. Marcin Held's on this card. Rob Wilkinson's taken on Victor Pesta. Damn, there's actually some really good cards on this week. I don't know. I was. I came into this... Not really preparing much on the cards coming up this weekend. I probably should have, honestly, because there are a bunch of banging fights that I have nothing for you. No no commentary for you regarding. So yes, in that case, I will probably just shut the fuck up. Unless I'm just now sorting through and seeing if there's any news from the past week that I can refer to that's particularly interesting. Yes, no, here it is. There's a bloody elbow article. Referring back to when I mentioned the revenue split and how fucking trash it is. Just just earlier. I, I couldn't find the article that I was referencing. I've just found it now because it is the second... It's the second link from the past week on the MMA subreddit. Like, the second most upvoted link. And, yeah, it's on Bloody Elbow. Documents show UFC now makes over $1 billion a year. Minimal costs and more growth expected. And then, where is it? I believe it says 17.5%. Lubin also disclosed that fighter pay had increased 26% CAGR since 2005. I cannot tell you what that uh, that acronym means, so we'll continue on. Since we also know what total fighter pay was in 2005, $4.3 million, total fighter pay would have been around $178.8 million last year. That would be just 17.5% of their total revenue. Oh, how delightful. I mean, this is... As much as the UFC tries to push down the announcements regarding fighter pay, like, they used to be forced by pretty much all the commissions across the US and some of the foreign ones as well. They were forced to disclose payment to each individual fighter. And as the years have kind of gone on, that has become less and less common. And for a while there, pretty much the like the Nevada State Athletic Commission kept doing it, and then they stopped doing it as well. And so now you've got very few commissions which continue to do it. I think California still does. When they go host a, an event at the forum, you'll sometimes see that they announce, they announce purse figures after those fights. But unless the commission requires it, the UFC doesn't give a shit. They're not going to they're not going to let anyone know because obviously it it impacts on their leverage in negotiations and it gives fans a better indication of how fucking bullshit the the pay grades are in the mixed martial arts world in the best organization for mixed martial arts in the world they pay their fighters 17.5 percent of their total revenue that's trash that's trash particularly when so much of their revenue comes from guaranteed deals like espn pays a guaranteed amount 
for a specific amount of shows. And so long as the UFC provides that amount of shows, then it secures the amount that is promised in their contracts. And that's part of the reason why you see so many of these motherfuckers, these 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 cards filled up with motherfuckers who are paid 10 and 10 and you've never heard of them. I feel like there are just a lot more Fight Night cards nowadays and a lot more of those Fight Night cards are filled with no names that you've never heard of that are being fed through LFA, that are being fed through regional organizations and they're being fed through to the UFC a lot earlier than they probably would have been five, ten years ago, certainly ten years ago, five years ago even. Yes. That document, you can go read it now on Bloody Elbow. It's pretty extensive. I think a big part of it, part of the reason that this this came out is ultimately that there was an earnings call for Endeavor because, you know, it's a publicly listed company and publicly listed companies have to announce to stakeholders, have to announce to the public, hey, this is how much we've earned and this is the financial viability of our company at this point. The UFC doesn't want anyone to know, does not want to disclose what its expenditures are because it would make them look like greedy cunts. But ultimately, their parent organization is publicly owned, so they kind of have to. You love to see it. You love to see accountability in some shape or form. I mean, it's not going to... I mean, with motherfuckers like Sam Alvey on the UFC roster who are like, no, no, I I don't want to form a union because I believe I'm going to be the next Conor McGregor. And because of that, a union would impact my ability to earn fuckloads of cash because I'd have to think about the little guy. I'd have to think about the guy not earning much money. That would decrease that would decrease my earnings. Like that's not how it works, you dumb motherfucker. Jesus Christ. Go to a construction company. They've all got fucking utes. Like shit. You know? You might earn slightly... Conor McGregor's... Actually, no, Conor McGregor's would earn a lot more money with a union. Because with a union, they'd be able to argue, hey, we bring in fuckloads of pay-per-views and you're paying us currently about $10 million to show. And that's... That's just not equivalent to the kind of attention that we're bringing to your brand. That's not equivalent to the amount of pay-per-view buys that we're securing by headlining. So even your headliners would be making more. So yeah, shut the fuck up, Sam Alvey. Shut the fuck up, anti-union cunts. Go eat a dick. Anyway, I've waffled on for about 53 minutes, 52 and a half minutes, technically. I'll shut the fuck up now. Have a good week. Maybe I'll pop on back in the middle of the week to talk about PFL, because I think that's on Thursday. Friday for Australians, but Thursday for the rest of you schmucks. Enjoy your week. I'll catch you later. Bye.